Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team are going to talk about the technology behind this week's news. I'm CEO Peter White. I've got with me editor Bogdan Evermuta. Hello. And we have solar analyst entries Fontenar. Hello. And our EV and battery specialist Colomots. Hello. All this discussion is based around the stories published in uh, last night on our website, rethinkresearch.biz. If you get to that website and you click on energy, you should be able to read the first few lines of each story. If you want to read more, ask for a free trial. It should be easy to do. Something should jump up in front of you offering it. So the past week has seen Spain, the UK, Portugal and other parts of Europe, Europe upgrade their 2030 solar targets. Spain's has almost doubled from 37 gigawatts to 76 gigawatts. Um, almost doubled, it's more than doubled. Uh, we, we also witnessed an argument at a conference about just how rapidly sodium battery technologies will evolve. I think we came down on the side of no, they won't very much. Uh, and we note that airlines have flown 500,000 flights powered by sustainable aviation fuel. That proves that that's such a great success. Just another 99.9% of the industry to go. Finally, I'll ask a few questions about one or two of the short items this week, but let's kick off with Andres, who's talking about the massive increases in solar. Yeah, so I was looking at, every now and then I like to write yet another article about just how much solar is growing worldwide, um, take a look at the big markets, the production. Um, now, the funny part about uh, about me putting European targets in the title is I looked at the, the biggest a single target announcement, the National Energy and Climate Plan submitted to the EU by Spain. Uh, and then when I crunched the numbers, I realized that actually the old target required about half of the, the rate of installation that already existed over the past five years. And the new target is slightly requires slightly less than uh, 2022. Now, in fairness, that's because Spain has been uh, uniquely active, well, along with Germany, a very active market in, in Europe, and it, you know, it's grown a lot like 40% or whatever last year. So, you know, when, when you look at other uh, national targets, fortunately, there is still a story there. The British one, I think, will require four gigawatts a year. I think it was one gigawatt last year, if you assume that the government figures only catch half of it, which I, I think that's the case in that country. So so what's the story there? Well, I think China has uh, an 80 gigawatt per annum export market in, in, in Europe, just like it did last year, pretty consistently from now on, assuming they don't totally overturn um, the horse cart on trade and don't uh, upscale their domestic manufacturing to a uh, total to, to an 80 gigawatt. What, what do you think the European um, market can get to in, you know, in terms of upgrading its own output? Do you think you can get above 20 gigawatts? Well, it just puts me in mind. I'm just, I'm just, I mean, I'm going to believe it when I see it. Uh, module capacity is relatively trivial, like we say, to develop and polysilicon already exists. So it's really about the wafer and the cell. Um, you know, and we did see, we did, we did write a couple of weeks back about how the EU had allowed nation states to engage in more uh, supportive policies of re renewable energy manufacturing. And then Germany came out with this uh, 10 gigawatt solar uh, manufacturing tender. But I believe it's 10 gigawatts when you add up each of the four main segments of um, Polysilicon, so it's two and a half gigawatts, really. Wafer cell module. Yeah, it's two and a half, which is not very, well, that's a third of Germany alone. And there's all kinds of 10 million population, one gigawatt per annum markets like uh, Sweden or whatever, or Austria or Switzerland. 
So you know, it's just not very huge. So the main thrust of this story is just um, checking up on, on how huge the Chinese figures are. They might install as much as 180 gigawatts this year. Uh, that's purely based on them installing 60 gigawatts AC, which is like uh, 72 DC, just in the first five months. So you just extrapolate that and add a bit more for December, as they usually do. When you see the Chinese installations almost doubling, up by 80%, I expect, this year, it's incredible to see that they're still able to increase their exports by 39% so far this year to 88 gigawatts in the first five months. Um, I mean, if you look at the increase in China just in one year, America and Europe put together by 2030 are unlikely to match the increase in China for this year alone, 80 gigawatts. Yeah, like the, the, the combined American and European yeah. installations per year of 2030 yeah. won't rival the Chinese yeah. 2023 installations. I mean, that, that's, that's what's, it's, it's just frightening how far, how, how, how much momentum China has. Um, I, I just always wonder, wouldn't it be much better from a job standpoint to just buy lots of Chinese panels, don't put tax on them, and just have loads of jobs of people installing them? rather than try and compete with China on manufacturing costs. It's funny, it's what the SEIA, the American uh, Association, has always said, oh, look, this is going, you know, these, these tariffs on imports from China, it's going to cost us jobs. And yet now with the Inflation Reduction Act, they're, not, they're almost not allowed to import um, panels from China. Well, as, as I, I used to be sort of sympathetic to trying to reindustrialize. Um, uh, reshore industries. But in the case of solar, it just seems like a very, very daunting prospect. Um, especially just take polysilicon as the one example. I know we still have quite a lot in the West that, from a whole decade back. But the Chinese have, have, have literally got millions of tons of production capacity they can make um, that they can follow through on, on commissioning. And once they do that, do you really want to be competing with that? Or, okay, you're not competing, you, you push them out of the market. Well, you push them out because it's more expensive, because it's cheaper. So, uh, yeah, and, and then you have to invest all this capex into your own stuff. You're paying a lot of upfront money on the investment for your own production capacity so that you can buy something that's more expensive, that doesn't have, uh, that even won't have the same economy of scale or, or even expertise at this point. Uh, and can then, Why not and, can, and, and it can then go bust just the way solar did 10 years ago. Well, I don't know about that because isn't the, I mean, the demand is going to be pretty consistent from now on, I would think. It, and and you know, 10 years ago, I would say the products are so much weaker that it was much more dependent on uh, support, policy support. These days, it's more of a legitimate thing. That's why that next wave thing that you wrote up, you know, let, let, let's not make polysilicon. Let, let's just... Um, um, you know, directly deposit the waste. Yeah, yeah, vapor deposition the way the, the the cells almost directly on onto the onto the glass, you know, and and of course perovskite much the same. Let's let's paint the perovskite ink onto glass. I mean, it, it it that's the way to go. It's if you've got intellectual property, if you've got an advantage, if you can do it far more cheaply, then don't don't for Christ's sake put your labor costs up against China's labor costs because you're going to lose. Anyway, um, so the conclusion kind of carried on from the Chinese point of view into Europe, and you spent a lot of time on Europe. The, the European um, mission is going up and up on solar, 
all of these adjustments, these upgrades to nationally declared contributions from solar is are just in line with the imports. I mean, in, in a way, this article ended up being a, a grab bag of of different uh, things, but there are some there's some very interesting stats for those who who it may concern about the particulars of how much it costs to build a top con production line, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, you can infer when you look at the exports, for example, um, you can get some up to date figures on how much um, cell and wafer production capacity exists outside, outside of China, because we know that China's um, wafer production is over 97% um, <laughs> of the world's. I had it written more accurately in one of my previous articles, I should go back and find it. Might be as much as 97.8. So if they export 202.8 gigawatts and they also export 180.7 gigawatts of cells, well, that means that there's 20 gigawatts of uh, cell manufacturing using the 20 gigawatts of, of wafers. Sorry, if they produce 200 gigawatts of wafers and they produce 180 gigawatts of cells, the other 20 is, is foreign uh, manufacture. And then, then they're down to 164 gigawatts per, per module. So that's is, um, yeah, so I mean, you're, 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 um, you've always said this, yeah. you know, first build modules from from existing cells. And if then you've got a nice module uh, a manufacturing base, then start making cells from imported wafers. And that's the way around to do it. And that's the way around you've always recommended to America and Europe to do it. Well, it's the idea I got from the uh, Solar Energies Industry Association. Basically, it's one thing to make a cell to sell to a Western module maker. You can do that given the current policy environment. You definitely don't want to be in a position where you're making a cell and then trying to sell it to the Chinese module makers <laughs> and competing directly with their cell makers. Andres, I had a question about yeah. about the UAE. I know Peter usually is a how can I put it? He's he's maybe in disbelief that anybody in the Middle East can follow up on their uh, renewable promises. And I was wondering, what's your personal view? Well, I like to assume that they aren't idiots, but if Peter says they are, then maybe I'll believe him. <laughs> no, no, that's not. So it, I've never said the UAE will or won't do anything. I've always said Saudi Arabia has promised multiple times to put in two or three gigawatts of solar and has never done it. So in this article, um, you've mentioned the UAE. What did you say about them? I just said uh, they have a 54 billion renewable and hydrogen push looking to net zero by 2050. Now, the, the 54 billion, though, is over the next seven years. So let's say solar alone gets a third of the investment. Uh, considering that it's now less than a billion dollars per gigawatt, I think that would be 24 gigawatts of solar. Uh, and you'd need to spend much of the rest of the 54 billion on the batteries and the hydrogen to actually uh, fully use and integrate that solar. Uh, but this should this sounds like uh, enough money. And, you know, while while the development of solar within Saudi Arabia has been delayed, or I think it's starting to come through now there as well. The UAE has been a, a little bit more consistent. Um, and both countries uh, have, which way around is it? I think it's Aquapower is the Saudi one and Mazdar is the UAE uh, developer. They've been building multiple gigawatts of solar and, uh, and I think wind uh, all over the place in the no, Middle East yeah, and Central Asia. Mostly not in the Middle East, mostly in Central Asia. They, 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 get, they, get, they get big contracts uh, outside of their territory. Yeah. I mean, they do have some Uzbekistan. Yeah. yeah. Uzbekistan. So, you know, they can do it there. And, and the UAE, both countries, uh, it's probably just thanks to having a bunch of migrant, migrant labor from India, uh, now that I think about it. They have very cheap um, solar um, record, uh, low solar costs for you know, total cost per, per megawatt hour. 
Uh, and that's not going to change. It's still a desert with cheap land and all of the, the migrants to build it with, the same people that make it very cheap to build solar in, Indi in, in India itself. Um, so there you go. Okay, we're going to move on to sodium now. Um, Connor, um, sodium batteries. We get um, people all the time eulogizing about sodium batteries. What, what obstacles does it have in its way? You, you witnessed an argument between DMV and a company I've not heard across, SDLE. Yeah, that is uh, Schmuel de Leon uh, Battery Consulting. Yeah. It wasn't so much an argument as it was a rather poor transition in between speakers where the DNV representative effectively said, sodium ion is kind of a hot topic at the moment, but in the UK and in the West, and as a result of it not being as um, desirable in the West, the commercialization prospects for it are weaker, which we agree with. And then Schmuel de Leon came on immediately afterwards and said, this is why sodium is the next big thing. And it was a, a little jarring, to say the least. Talk us through the, the lo other... logic. Talk us through the logic. Number one, why does he say it's the next big thing? Number two, why does that DMV not agree? So, Schmordelian's logic more or less hinges on the fact that sodium ion is a very early stage technology, as it's currently at about 140 watt hours per kilogram of storage. The company I mentioned in the article, Ultras, recently announced a cathode material based on Prussian white, which is a Prussian blue analog, yep. which shows 150 watt hours per kilogram, saying that it can get to 160 within a couple of years. And other battery companies are looking at the kind of 160 to 180 area between the next three to four so, years. So there's only another, another it, yeah, 100 you know. to go to get to the energy density we're already at with NMC in the, in the West. Of ternary batteries, yes, but that's not where it will be competing with it immediately. Okay. It will primarily be competing with LFP batteries, which are more like 200 to 220 okay. as of right now. But this is where Schmolder Leon's logic kind of falls apart. The LFP batteries assume... used in grid or, or used in Chinese cars? Used in both. Yeah, I, I realise, but which one is it going to compete with? Because if it's, if it's, not, if it's too heavy, it, it won't work. His argument was for both, in that the increase in the energy density enabled by the progression of sodium battery tech would allow for it to be used in greater mobility applications, which we're already seeing with some like microcars in China. So cars like the Wuling Hongguang Mini, I've probably butchered that, but you know what I mean, use a tiny, tiny battery and are tiny, tiny cars. Sodium is okay for this because you're adding a little bit of extra weight, but you're not losing too much mileage out of it. It won't work for your Teslas or your Volkswagens, yeah. but it will work for the little city cars that are popular in basically just China and Italy. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that's, that's something that's got to, that will change over time. It will probably proliferate throughout Europe because um, it's it's really not a function of how you shouldn't have to have this much battery in a car. If it, if it only took five minutes to recharge it, you wouldn't have to have this much battery. In three to five years, we'll start to see charging times come down, 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 and then we'll see a different complexion in the battery market. And, and then maybe other materials can, uh, can, but can have their day. But the trouble is, so much money's gone into lithium-ion batteries, and the, the competition on price and on energy density is so intense that it's just going to continue to leave these others 
technologies for dead. Exactly. And I can see his, well, I can see the logic in supporting sodium ion batteries from a Chinese point of view, because it doesn't really have the impetus for immediate commercial viability that Western and European companies need to survive. Well, 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 only if it's taken up by somebody who's already got battery revenue. So only if CATL and and, and, and BYD take it up. But they can drop it from their R&D uh, efforts anytime they like, or they can drop it from minor manufacturing pilots anytime they like, if it doesn't show promise. Uh, but, but no venture capital for... And that's why they do it. That's why these Chinese companies do it. They go, well, what if it is the next big thing? A venture capital firm can't afford to spend the $250 million it needs and not know when it's going to get a return on its investment, whereas we can. It's a bit like Google investing in new technology. It, 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 can, it can go off the rails a bit, uh, and it doesn't matter if that money's wasted. But if there's not enough competition in the market, the price on it won't come down. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I mean by Western and European battery manufacturers that are trying to innovate into sodium. Either need an existing revenue stream to fund it because, as you say, the venture capitalists won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Mm. It's not an attractive thing for Western consumers. And right around the corner, so we've got Toyota also. I know this wasn't in this story, but you did a short. Toyota saying, oh, we've got a revolutionary new battery. It's going to be solid state and it's going to be out by... 2020, 2027. 2027. <laughs> and I'm going, what? You know, the market will have shifted to solid state by 2027. And the energy density they're talking about is not that significantly higher. It's maybe 350. What I failed to um, address in that particular article is that the semi-solid state that NEO is using from a company called WeLion in, yep. in China which is a 150 kilowatt hour battery is now being put into vehicles through the battery swap. And station. what's its density? Its energy density is supposed to be about 350. Wow. I mean, that's what you've got to keep up with. But it's also a 150 kilowatt hour battery. Yeah. I mean, that's what you've got to keep up with. If you've got to throw money at a problem that's chasing uh, an industry that's got, that's had two or $300 billion spent on it, you're just going to get, you're on a hiding to nothing. Um, Anyway, so what was the conclusion to this discussion? We, we didn't really get, uh, it was just juxtaposition. Uh, this is the best thing since price spread. No, it isn't, or the other way around. So it was in the context of a discussion around the evolving cost assessment of battery technology for mobility applications. And one of the problems with sodium ion batteries is that there isn't really a consensus on what the dominant cathode type is going to be. So the innovation is split among three dominant archetypes. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, does this still form dendrites in the same way that lithium does? It has some expansionary issues, but I think that is being addressed. Okay. And I think it's easier to address. It's reportedly considerably safer. So, so, so for me, the you know the, a battery technology has to get into a, a gigafactory before 2020, five, six, certainly seven, and it doesn't matter whether it's a lithium or a non-lithium technology, it's got to be ready to undercut lithium iron on a price basis by 2027, because we're going to see a huge demand spike as uh, electric vehicles continue to outpace everybody's forecasts except ours. And 
as that happens, um, every uh, lithium-ion battery you make, it can be sold. And so there's no downward price pressure. And then suddenly, come 2027, there'll be downward price pressure. And and the uh, the plateau, the price plateau we've been on, as we seek out more raw materials, will be over. And, and the, it will go to the floor if it's threatened by a rival technology. So, you know, I, I can't see sodium uh, making... You know, being cheaper than lithium-ion by 2027. It is worth mentioning that sodium-ion is already being manufactured at a gigawatt scale in China, but also so is solid state. They also so... open, open cinemas, but they're all empty. I mean, it, you know, China <laughs> has, a, has a particular way of doing things. They cover every move. And so they're making some, some sodium battery in case it works. And that might flower, but if it does it's going to be worse than everyone realises because it will mean China will own a new battery technology that no one can keep up with. If I remember rightly, there was a 20 gigawatt hour uh, sodium battery factory announced months and months back. So they may not have yet reached proper pilot project scale yeah. by Chinese standards. Not by Chinese standards. That's true. <laughs> okay, Bogdan, we're going to go off on a little uh, adventure talking about SAF, uh, Sustainable mm. Aviation Fuel. Um, you know, it's it's reached a, a milestone. Yes, not much of an adventure, but SAF has indeed reached a milestone. The 500,000 flight overall it might sound flashy, but when you're thinking about the 30 million flights per year or 40 million pre-pandemic levels, really puts it into context. I think, I mean, I was writing about how Australia decided to invest 30 million Australian dollars into grant money to fund domestic, essentially biofuel projects, SAF projects. And it's just a so, so tiny amount of money. I don't know if, if, the, if the SAF industry gaslight, is gaslighting themselves into thinking that they're doing enough, um, but they're definitely not. And then on the other hand, hydrogen is, is, is making quite a bit of progress. Um, there's been a lot of news uh, especially around Zero Avia, they went to the Paris show a few months ago. They signed a few agreements to sell uh, about 100 propulsion units. Well, with the article, I was just trying to basically round up some news around SAF and, and hydrogen. And really, even though SAF reached 500,000 flights. I mean, I think uh, I think everyone's got, got a, a right to say to us that you're always banging on about learning curve. And you're always banging on about the cost of it coming down and then that stimulating more manufacture and this being a natural pro economic process. So why, yeah. why is that not true for SAF as well? And the only reason it's not true for SAF is that companies like Zero Avia are pushing that hydrogen boat out there. Oh, sorry, mixed, mixed uh, metaphors. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so once you can fly a zero CO2 flight and promise that you're not putting any pollutants in the air, you're going to start doing it. And that means all the hydrogen flights will be full and the price of hydrogen flying will come down more rapidly. And all that's going to happen before anyone takes SAF seriously, before it reaches 1% of the fuel industry. And, and that's, that's the problem. You know, yes, it could go through a learning curve. Maybe by 2070, 2080, we might have 40% of flights on SAF. We'll also have a planet that doesn't work very well. Yeah, exactly. And um, this is exactly what I was trying to highlight with the 30 million that 
uh, Australian dollars that Australian government was was committing. That doesn't really sound like it's enough to put stuff through the learning curve and to get the the supply chain up and running. It is gaslighting. It is exactly what it is. It's look, we don't need to change. Let's just tell the world we're planning to change one day. That's enough. Um, mm. the, the people that believe in fuel, all forms of fuel, um, it's it really is. They can't believe it. I mean, I, the, the thing I hear most often is you can't change infrastructure that quickly. You can't do it in 30 years. Um, well, there's a lot of engineers out there who believe we have to, and they're working on it, and they're going to fix it come hell or high water. So I, I think SAF is just going to be left behind. Yeah, well, we all agree on that one, so let's move on. Um, I, I just wanted to talk about a couple of um, short items. Several Chinese wind turbine manufacturers, Goldwind, uh, wind, Minyang Smart Energy and Seni Group, uh, and some others are looking to enter the solar manufacturing. We're back full circle to the first story. Was this one of yours, Andrews? Uh, yeah, but it's it's not actually very fresh news. I think they've been constantly doing that. Uh, it's just part of the general trend. Um, yeah, I, I probably should have mentioned it in the actual article um, near the end when I started talking about consolidation and who's moving into what. Um, you see furniture companies moving into solar manufacturing. You see jewelry country companies moving into solar manufacturing in China, which is quite remarkable, especially now that the prices have collapsed. I mean, the, since November, I think the yeah, since November, the price of a of even a full module has collapsed by a third, and it's probably mostly finished falling now. Polysilicon has actually uh, incremented up very very slightly, um, and so. That means cells and modules, actually, they fell quite significantly again this week, but that means they can't fall that much further. So it's quite interesting when you see people still uh, crowding into this um, segment. And I guess it's because there's still so much room to, it's, uh, to it's, grow. You can't lose money going into solar right now. It's almost impossible. Um, the demand is massive. Part of that, like I mentioned in, in, the, um, in the full article, is you've got all this monoperc production capacity, which needs to be... Uh, which is, it's not obsolete yet, but it, it, it is it is obsolete from the point of view of building any new factories. Um, all of the, I would assume almost all of the new stuff is Topcon and, well, actually, I know that because I cover it. Uh, almost all of the new stuff is Topcon and Heterojunction. I haven't quantified how much of the new stuff is, is what type, but it's almost all Topcon and Heterojunction. And I used to think that Topcon, you just adapt it from Monopuck. Apparently, they've already adapted um, all of the conveniently adaptable monoperc lines. So even the top one is new build. So I think that is why you can still enter photovoltaics, uh, probably more at the cell level, uh, you know, module and wafer as well, maybe. Whereas with polysilicon, I think the glass is really set in and now they're looking on backpedaling some of their uh, planned expansions because they, they really have created the glut that I that you predicted. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I just think this is amazing. You've got uh, Chinese companies who it's hard enough to compete in the wind turbine market within China. Uh, globally, you've got three uh, big global companies um, that also bring down the price of wind turbines. Um, and yet they're happy to look aside and put several billion dollars into something which is a neighboring technology. It's, if only the oil companies of the West were so flexible. Um, instead of, you know, they could have 
put enough enough money into SAF to have made it happen. They haven't. They're not planning to. They could have put enough money into renewals to make them happen. They haven't. They're not planning to. It's just, what? why is the Chinese mind so much more flexible? And I think the answer is it hasn't owned the energy industry for 135 years unchanged. And to, to the Chinese mind, this energy market has been changing since the day they entered it. So why not? Hmm. Okay, uh, I'm just going to go on to one last subject because it just drives me absolutely nuts. Um, There's a, it was a story in the UK Guardian newspaper. This is very parochially English, but I just feel we need to go there. Um, they've uncovered what I call a plot by UK politicians in the ruling Conservative Party to actually drop the £11.6 billion, $14.7 billion dollars uh, climate and Nature Finance Pledge. So this was a pledge made at COP27. We tried to get um, Europe and America and, and other rich countries to donate $100 billion a year uh, to countries, um, uh, to third world countries, so they could upgrade their infrastructure. Um, it's, it's, it's two to three years late, and here's the UK about to just renege on the whole thing. And why? Because we've got a new prime minister and the new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, has no idea uh, what global warming is. Another non-scientist. He's meant to be great on detail. Unfortunately, there's a detail he should take in. 75% of the vote in public in the UK are really worried about climate change. Rishi Sunak has no idea what climate change is. Uh, his um, environment minister, Zach Goldsmith, also resigned this week, saying Sunak is uninterested in environmental issues. Well, what other issues are there? Well, other than the interest rate situation and sort of things, I'm not like defending this at all. It's a horrific decision at yeah. all levels. Yeah. Well, you can do two things at once, can't you? You can, you can do economics. Uh, you can fix the interest rate issues. You can fix the economics. You can fix the, the, the pound in your pocket at the same time as, as fighting climate change. Well, I think that's the thing that they don't understand, <laughs> in that most of their policy is ideology-driven. They're looking at this and they're thinking, oh, debt, bad, and just reducing spending regardless of what that spending would do. In I, I love the way they're what... saying interest rates must go up because there's inflation, um, even though it bankrupts everybody that's the Bank personally. Of England, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That is true. It is the Bank of England. Nothing to do with the government. But this puts us out of alignment. This puts the UK totally out of alignment with every European government. It's it's the reason British Vault couldn't get any funding in the UK, because we were wishy-washy around manufacturing. We are wishy-washy about electric vehicles. And the, the Daily Mail newspaper has been running a three-day campaign uh, on asking everyone to rethink the 2030 petrol car ban um, where we were five years ahead of the rest of Europe. We were going to ban ICE vehicles by 2030, not 2035. The Daily Mail is a dreadful newspaper, which is uh, listened to by the, um, the middle classes in the UK. And it's just savage in, in attacking electric vehicles and how rubbish they are. They have things which they believe uh, the man in the street uh, responds to, and they try and manipulate his voting habits this one's not going to work. Um, everybody understands that if we can't fix global warming, we can't have a planet. The news at the moment is that the hottest days in history are being recorded right now across the globe. 
and people are dying. And, you know, there are floods coming to China while they're dying of heat stroke. So, so, you know, what do you think people are going to think? They're going to think this is bad. Let's do something about it. Government's fiddling while the world burns. Anyway, I prob we're probably on a soapbox now. So let's, let's get off our political soapbox. Uh, that was it. That was, we just had to get it off the chest. If, if you need to know more about these stories, they come from uh, rethinkresearch.biz. Go to the website, click, click on energy, and you'll be amongst the stories. There's lots more than this. This is just a small part of our issue. Um, go there, read the issue, read the forecasts and data, buy into the service. It's surprisingly cheap, but at the same time, uh, radically different. And we'll be back next week with another podcast trying to convince you to become one of our customers again. All right, but bye for now.